we kind of come to the uh, to the industry, as it were. It's been very nascent, but it is an industry that's growing. Uh, but we come to it as kind of explorers, right? And so, like, while you were exploring the ethical uh, aspects of uh, of where this technology is going, what it's capable of, what it's not, uh, we're we're also trying to explore that within our own bodies. So I think it's it's important to to involve ethics uh, and ethicists in in uh, in the endeavors because. Um, it, it, and invariably, that's where humans are headed. We've, we've always been tool users. You know, we'll continue to be tool users. They're going to get smaller, smarter, and more invasive. We fit the fittest minds with the chip inside. I can link and digitize that which prior to this was higher than science could ever devise. This is a neural interface. We're going to stick it in your face. Still it in your brain and interlace. There's an arms war on and we're going to win the race. Leave everything a race. Bring the base. Welcome to Dangerous Minds, where we delve into the minds of biohackers, grinders, and take a closer look at the tech being implanted and developed by this community. Now, this is a special edition of DMP Tonight, a recording of a panel at the last body hacking convention this past January. And we're sharing this as a recap of great information that was presented, and also as a special reminder, because that same team behind Body Hacks also puts on an information security conference called InfoSec. Southwest. Now this year, it'll be occurring very soon, April 7th through 9th in Austin, Texas. For more information and tickets, please go to InfoSecSouthwest.com. Now we look forward to seeing you there at the great talks and panels, Expo Floor, the Lockpick Village, as well as Capture the Flag competition, but also the scavenger hunt, which has led to many lasting memory and yes, tattoos. But so again, check them out because this team sure knows how to put on not only a good party, but also a good convention. And that is definitely InfoSecSouthwest.com. Take a look, get some tickets. It's coming soon, and we hope to see you there. But before we share this, we want to thank our sponsor, Dangerous Things, who delivers cushion gadgetry for the discerning hacker and biohacker. So check them out at DangerousThings.com. If you or your organization is interested in sponsoring the efforts of Dangerous Minds podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at DangerousMinds.io and email us at info at dangerousminds.io, and we'll be glad to talk to you about it. Welcome, everyone, to the, uh, the ethics panel. Uh, today we're going to talk about things that we shouldn't do, perhaps, or maybe things that we should do. And uh, I'm just going to do a, a quick introduction, but first, you know, biological modifications, you know, whether they be cosmetic, um, therapeutic, augmentative, they are increasingly becoming a part of our reality, and often faster than we have a chance to think through the implications both as a society and you know both in terms of our institutions. Our objective today um, with the time that we've been allowed is to think through and share some of the ethical considerations about the many complex and often heated issues that are involved and as always we'll open the floor to questions once we've had our conversation. So let me just introduce the panel. Um, Dr. John Sadler. John is currently professor of psychiatry and clinical sciences and the D Daniel W. Foster an MD professor of medical ethics at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. Dr. Sadler directs the Division of Ethics in the Department of Psychiatry and is the institution-wide director of the program in Ethics and Science and Medicine at UT Southwestern. He's a UT Southwestern Distinguished Teaching Professor and a member of the University of Texas Health Science Systems Shine Academy of Health Education. Sherry Eskenazi earned her MS in Biomedical Ethics at Albany Medical College 
and studied at Yale University's Institute in Interdisciplinary Ethics, where she has been invited to return as an instructor during the summer. She recently completed MD Anderson's rigorous clinical ethics internship and is currently pursuing a PhD in public health with a focus on behavioral sciences. Since researching the philosophy, uh, sorry, the, researching the philosophical theory of transhumanism in college, she's enjoyed discussing the ethics of adopting new technologies and the fine line between advancing our capacity and diminishing what makes us human. Dr. Victoria Sutton is a Paul Whitfield, Horn Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Biodefense Law and Public Policy. The only center at law school in the U.S. to focus solely on issues of law and biodefense, biosecurity, and bioterrorism. She's established the Law and Science Certificate Program with unanimous support of the faculty and directs the JDMS program in Environmental Toxicology, Biotechnology, and Plant and Soil Sciences. And a guest today on the panel, we had an unfortunate cancellation, but Amal Grifstra, sorry I pronounced that incorrectly, Close enough. Grifstra, uh, has uh, graciously uh, uh, decided to help us out today. Um, Amal has a long history with technology. He's got two small RFID transponders implanted onto one of, into each of his hands, and he uses them to open doors, start his vehicles, and log on to his computer. Since implanting himself, he's written a book called RFID Toys, become a TEDx speaker, he's made numerous media appearances, and is the subject of documentaries. My name is George Dvorsky. I'm a science writer and a futurist. Um, I work at Gizmodo, where you can find some of my writings. I'm also uh, uh, an ethicist, uh, bioethicist at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, where we do just that. We consider the ethical implications of um, both uh, current uh, technolo technological developments and those that appear on the horizon. Okay, now a number of years ago, I attended a transhumanist theme conference. And we talked about all the wild and wonderful things that we we're going to do to our brains and to our bodies. And, uh, and, we, and we had uh, an ethics panel much like this one, of which I, I took part. And after the, um, the discussion, I looked through the, my Twitter feed to see what the back channel conversation was like. And we literally had a conversation which went roughly like this. Why the hell do we even have bioethicists at a transhumanist conference? With that... Um, statement in mind, and I would actually like to throw that at the panel. Victoria, I'd like to start with you. Why are we even here? Why? I mean, imagine everyone here, if I was to get a show of hands, who here is in, in some way, shape, or form in favor of some kind of biohacking? Okay. Um, so are we, an, is this a nuisance that we're here? Um, or are you glad that we are here? Um, Victoria. That's good. Thank you very much for giving me time to think, so, think of something. <laughs> very good. I Sorry, like that. Good. Nice. Good moderator. Um, yes, absolutely. I'm a lawyer, but all law really starts from some aspect of ethics. We really have to first have some kind of norm that we want to create a rule of law around. So uh, from an ethics standpoint, if we don't have some norms to start with, we can very quickly go off track and have something that maybe is completely rejected eventually by society. So we do need a code of ethics because we need to think about what is a good norm, a norm meaning what is a value, a standard value that we want to have. And if you were in the last lecture, for example, you heard there were some norms like your device should always do what the owner wants, that's a norm. Uh, you might say that might be a good norm for um, uh, body hacking for a device as well. Make sure the device always does what the owner wants. Um, so if we don't start out with an ethic like that, we could very quickly go off track and end up really harming a good possibility to enhance our lives 
by uh, ending up having it uh, rejected or delayed getting into a mainstream kind of uh, thinking. And as long as we keep some norms around it, we can probably maximize its value for society. John, you do work in ethics, obviously. Um, yeah. Why do you feel it's important that you be at a conference like this? Well, so the way I approach uh, uh, a conference like this, or actually any sort of discussion of technology emerging or otherwise, is based on a, just a couple of fairly simple principles. So if we look at, for example, this uh, cup of water, um, one of the things we can understand about technologies is that the values that they embody are built into them. And so in this particular case, this is a glass of water. I'm going to talk about the, the cup, not the water. The cup is uh, light, it's transparent, it's, uh, it's uh, inexpensive. Uh, when I'm finished, I will throw it away, um, possibly in a recycle bin, but possibly not. And so these values... Uh, both can be positive and negative that are embodied in the technology. They're designed in. They live, so to speak, inside this technological design. Same thing with the whole body uh, hacking endeavor. Um, the, the downside of my cup is, is, is that it's going to create a potential pollution problem, among other things. And so then we have to invent new technologies, procedures, and indeed laws to regulate the, the downside of technologies. Uh, for example, developing recycle bins and uh, arranging for their collection and disposal and perhaps redistribution and so forth. So one of the reasons I'm here is to not just uh, uh, explore the positive values that are associated with the body hacking endeavor, but also so that we're not naive in moving forward, as, as Mr. Doctorow, uh, I think, very vividly illustrated, so that we can then go forward uh, being fully informed and knowing what we're getting into. Jared, did you have anything to? Well, I'm trained in clinical ethics, so I think of things as mostly like, is this medically appropriate when I think of adopting new technologies? So I think of conferences like this as an opportunity for me to learn more about kind of technologies and why they're adoptive if it's not an explicitly or exclusively medically appropriate technology to be using. So I think it's important to kind of learn both sides so that I understand the pros and the cons of adopting such a technology. Uh, from a biohacking perspective, I think a lot of biohackers look at uh, ethicists and ethics boards like uh, a potential roadblock. And uh, I mean, that's why the conversation on the back channel was started out that way, right? Why, why are they here? Um, you know, we we kind of come to the uh, to the industry, as it were, it's very nascent, but it is an industry that's growing, uh, but we come to it as kind of explorers, right? And so, like, while you were exploring the ethical uh, aspects of, uh, of where this technology is going, what it's capable of, what it's not, uh, we're, we're also trying to explore that within our own bodies. So I think it's, it's important to, to involve ethics uh, and ethicists in, in, uh, in the endeavors, because um, it, it, invariably, that's where humans are headed. We've, we've always been tool users. You know, we'll continue to be tool users. They're going to get smaller, smarter, and more invasive. So it's good that, that we're here having this conversation. I think before we get into some of the, um, um, the nitty-gritty, I think it's important that we maybe take a step back for a second here and even ask ourselves a very important question, which is why are we even going about biohacking? Why are we even talking or even thinking about this and in actually engaging in it? 
I mean, aren't our bodies and our minds good enough? I mean, uh, in, in their present state in terms of what's naturally been given to us? And shouldn't we be content with what we have? Are we just being selfish? Are we just being uh, maybe far too experimental? Um, and do we risk, for example, kind of undermining what it means to be human, um, what it means to be in a so-called natural state? Um, and I, I would like Sherrod to actually open up with that, because I know you've done some work in transhumanism, which is the kind of that, that, that ethos that kind of celebrates that notion that we actually probably should move beyond our uh, latent human capacities. So I think there's some technologies, like I personally wear contact lenses, and that is kind of a survival point for me. Like if I'm blind, I'm not going to be able to drive or kind of survive at any point in my life because I'm blind. So I think contact lenses and things like that kind of give us an advantage as human beings so that we can survive like at the kind of baseline that we're supposed to be at, I guess. Although evolution would kind of say like if you don't have good vision, you're supposed to die out. But I don't want to die out, so I'm going to use contact lenses. But I think there's also a point of like contact lenses that kind of have cameras embedded in them. And that gives you like an opportunity to take pictures of somebody without their consent. So I think that's kind of a point where you're breaching somebody else's opportunity to have like a good, like baseline life where they're not being breached on or upon. I guess. Right. Um, you've actually modified yourself. Why? Yeah. Um, um, why do you feel you had to do that? Um, uh, what's the impulse there? Um, well, let's start with um, the definition of transhumanism, which is uh, my definition is sure. international uh, fundamental group that's trying to change the human condition. So, um, and biohacking, hacking, having a negative connotation, my definition of hacking is simply that it's an alternative or non-conventional approach to problem solving or achieving a goal. Um, so a good hack is gonna turn conventional because it's more efficient or better. And so um, the idea that there's a natural human state is a farce. Uh, we, we've been evolving and things have been progressing from forever. There is no, you know, this is a human, boom, and that's it in a, in a box. Um, you know, the use of contact lenses and, and all that, these are tools that we've used and we're not outside of, of the animal kingdom, we're, we're part of it, so our, our brains uh, are enabling us evolutionarily to use these tools and survive and it's all part of the same matrix, it's not, it's not something that's special, but the, the drive, the human drive to improve ourselves and, and to explore uh, curiosity, all of those things are what make us human and this is nothing different. I mean, what I've done is nothing that outrageous. Um, but some people have this idea of the skin being a sacred barrier. And, you know, if we put something under, it's, it's somehow different or weird. Um, my, my drive is simply to improve myself and be able to give myself better capabilities. Um, you know, in medicine, it's about typically restorative technologies, getting back to a normal. Um, but why, why not go further? Um, and it, we've already seen it, seen it in medical uh, industry, like Oscar Pistorius, you know, has the blade uh, runner legs and before he started shooting up the place, um, he uh, ran in the regular Olympics, and it was argued that he had an unfair advantage. For, you know, evolutionarily speaking, in that environment, the Olympics running, he might have had an advantage. So um, the, the idea of ethics is becoming critical uh, because we're, we're seeing this, these different microcosms of society uh, have different reactions. And so, um, you know, if we're going to talk about humanity as a whole and, and the effects it's going to have on us, um, it's important to discuss, so. Yeah. yeah. Well, I see two different ideas emerging here. One of them is the um, enhancement side of body hacking. The other one is a new feature that you haven't had. And I think you said that. I'm just saying it in kind of a, uh, uh, another way, maybe. But why is one um, seen differently than the other one? For example, in enhancement. Um, you might have um, 
um, let's say cognitive enhancement. There's a lot of controversy about that now. Cognitive enhancement for undergrads. Um, you know, the, uh, there's first there was Ritalin, then there was Adderall, and now there's a next generation drug, which is? Modafinil. That's it. Armadafinil. Yeah, uh, yes. And, um, and this has gone so far as to have some universities have policies against the use of cognitive enhancements. Now, why would we, why would we want to stop that? There are a couple of uh, there are a couple of uh, schools of thought there. One of them is, well, only the rich kids will get it, so that's an unfair advantage. It's an, it's an equity issue. The other issue is, um, but it, it's it's just not natural. You know, why sh you shouldn't use use a, an enha cognitive enhancement? You should use your natural self. Um, does any uh, anyone find either of those arguments really showstoppers? for cognitive enhancement. I don't think so. I think there are ways to cope with both of those areas. But some schools see this as a showstopper. It shouldn't be done. And I think that's something we need to really have a conversation about because this is going to get just more controversial. This isn't stopping or leveling out. I think we're just going to see more and more of this uh, cognitive enhancement continue. And whether we want to uh, use this, um, and there are downsides to it too. As you know, there, there are downsides to using cognitive enhancers for, uh, for undergrads, uh, grads who are still using it through graduate school. Like we've got eight years now, going on eight years. Um, are these things that we want to try to find ways to deal with or do we want to stop it? And I think stopping it is just, is, that's just not gonna happen. Um, that other line of thinking that adding a feature you don't have, like the RFID, where you can do something that you're, you normally wouldn't do as a human, um, is that seen any differently? Should it be seen differently? Should enhancement be something different ethically than an added feature to human, human uh, sensorial ability or, or function? You know? John, you do work in um, psychiatry. Um, yeah. You know a thing or two about how the brain works. We're not good enough? I mean, our bodies and brains are not... Well, so the, w the way I think about transhumanism, or at least one of the most interesting and important areas of transhumanism is the idea that people want to enhance their abilities beyond what my colleague uh, Fabrice Jodoran talks about species-specific capabilities. So if I correct my, I too correct my vision with contact lenses, but that doesn't make me see better or farther or more clearly or different wavelengths uh, than, uh, th than which is species specific. On the other hand, if I can see you know, through walls or I can see farther away with more precision, then, then we're getting beyond uh, species uh, specific limitations. So, so that's, the, that's sort of the positive value is the idea uh, that is very old. Uh, that human uh, beings want to be able to do things that their bodies and minds can't can't do. Um, this goes back to putting on furs uh, for Neanderthals uh, in order to protect themselves because being naked apes was not suitable for living in Norway. Uh, and, and so, as a, a very crude example, as a, a very crude example. The other angle about this, I think there's something pretty fundamental about human nature um, that even today can be measured. My colleague uh, Robert Cloninger is a psychiatric geneticist. He's done 
extensive work on what are uh, uh, genetically relatively specific capabilities um, that uh, people embody. And the, as you might imagine, there's enormous variation. One of the most powerful uh, uh, personality characteristics is novelty seeking. Um, and people vary enormously uh, uh, on a whole spectrum in terms of how comfortable they are with novelty seeking. And the flip side of that, or the, the opposite end of the direction, is uh, risk aversion. And people vary pretty much continuously on those two dimensions. I would imagine, I would speculate that many of the individuals here are high in novelty seeking. I haven't tested them. Uh, but that would be my uh, informed guess. And so, again, I see, I see this impulse to uh, body hacking as embodying something that's pretty fundamental to all of us. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Um, further to, uh, um, I think, Victoria's point about uh, cognitive enhancers, um, what I'd like to discuss next is, uh, in a way, what's happening, let's say, at, at the university level amongst these students, but even thinking ahead to things like genetic modifications, potentially of our offspring, so-called designer babies. Um, and any, anything else in which we do have, I would say, a kind of competitive advantage against those individuals in our society who don't have those, or whose parents, or, or those individuals who just choose not to opt into that. Are we at risk of creating arms races amongst each other? And in a way, removing the freedom that some people think that they have um, for, for not wanting to uh, use these, uh, these technologies or these particular improvements. And in a way, coercing uh, uh, both parents and individuals to actually finally have to adopt these, these, uh, these enhancements just so that they can compete with what would be regular mainstream society. And is that a problem? Uh, that's, a, that's a big question. Um, uh, I think uh, what I'm thinking while you're talking about this, one of the first places that you typically see this kind of tech, any kind of technology bubble up with a lot of effort is in the military area. So maybe even before parents start using it, you're going to see this coming up in the military area. And I don't mean just the US military, I mean worldwide military. And I say this because I have been in some meetings, I can't, I had to not disclose what I heard in the meeting, but there are countries, and I, I don't think so, this will be a surprise to anyone in the room, that um, do not have the same kind of ethics that we do. And they feel like uh, whatever you can do is fair game, so they are already experimenting with uh, genetic enhancement, human genetic enhancement. So I think, to answer your question about parental selection, I think uh, just judging from the evolution of technology and emerging technologies, we'll see some of this maybe emerge in, in uh, a defense or military type environment before maybe we try it out. But I think that's certainly on the horizon. That, that's just my feeling. You may see, you may feel like it's going to come up through the private sector first, but if, if emerging technologies follow in the typical pattern, it will be, um, a, a, um, if it's valued in a military sense, which it is, um, then you might see that start to, start to see signs of that. Um, in, uh, in the military. We're already using exoskeletons for uniforms uh, as an enhancement, not genetic enhancement, but that's, that's another line, but an exoskeleton that allows you to carry more weight and walk further if you're in the military, and you know how valuable that could be. So that's already, um, that's today. So uh, you can imagine that this is already something that, that's bubbling up, I think.
out there. Sure, did you want to comment on so that? So a few years yeah. ago, I actually read about a case where these parents wanted their child to be deaf because they were deaf, and right. so they were mm. looking into whether or not the doctor could make the child deaf, and if, they, if the doctor wasn't willing to do it, they said that they would take their own means to do it because they wanted their child to be included in the deaf community the because it's more than just a dis it's not a disability sure. to them, it's an entire community and a way of life. So I think that's also something to be considered because a lot of people won't consider that a modification that's for the good of the child and it's kind of reaching upon their autonomy. So I think that's something. Do you have an opinion on that one way or the other? I think it's really reaching upon their autonomy personally because mm -hmm. it's a child who would otherwise be able to hear and so I think it's kind of a disadvantage to put them into the world when the parents know like they have their own struggles to overcome as deaf individuals. Yeah. So yeah, that's a very that's challenging uh, example that yeah. you brought up. For sure, I've struggled with that one myself. If it would mm -hmm. be appropriate for me to follow up, yeah, on please. That. So, so one of the things that I would encourage our audience and and people who are interested in this stuff is, uh, you know, a, a careful reading of history can really be revealing. And so, uh, back in uh, oh gosh, probably 40 or 50, 40 years ago, uh, John Money. Uh, was a, a psychologist at Johns Hopkins who uh, ultimately developed policies around how uh, infants with sexually ambiguous genitalia should be treated. And the, the long and short of it was, is, is that at that point in time, uh, he recommended that pediatricians, endocrinologists, psychiatrists, surgeons uh, would, would, should assign uh, a gender identity to uh, children with ambiguous genitalia based on the phenotypic resemblance of their genitalia to either male or female. And so put them into a specific gender binary. That policy uh, ruled the roost, although there was virtually zero evidence, scientific evidence, that suggested if that, that was the right thing to do. Um, some people call these uh, sorts of individuals today or, uh, or self-identify as intersex individuals. And uh, 30 years later, there evolved uh, a movement of people who wished to not only not have their gender assigned to them by somebody else at maturity, but rather for them to, uh, to undergo their choice to either be male, female, or intersex uh, at the at the point uh, of their adolescence, at some point in their adolescence, when they were able to really consider fully the the pros and cons in that arena, and so that that was standard medical practice for 25 years, which over the past 10 or so years uh, uh, has now been called into question. Now, there again, the, these are complex issues, as Sherry sort of suggested, because. Uh, there are certain risks that, uh, for example, undertaking uh, genital surgery um, as a teenager uh, that are, are higher than, uh, than as an infant. And correspondingly, there's, depending on the cause of the intersex condition, um, there are risks for particular diseases, including cancer that uh, should be addressed earlier rather than later. And so this whole idea of, uh, uh, you know, how to handle, handle intersex individuals uh, is very much under discussion. And I think in some ways, uh, it's a, again, a powerful argument for why these deliberations about mod body modification, either biological or 
electromechanical are, are worth conducting so we don't repeat uh, mistakes of the past. Um, yeah, if I might just kind of maybe inter uh, weave this a little bit, um, unless you had, it sounds like it's something you wanted to say. So Yeah, just okay. I want to jump in on, yeah. on answering the question. So, uh, of course, genetic arms race is inevitable. Um, but I, but I want to reel it back and, and make an argument that genetic modification is the moral and ethical thing to do. Um, you know, as human beings, we've been slowly opting out of the selective process you know, through the miracles of medicine. A baby is born with a heart defect. We perform surgery, remove the defect. But we're not addressing the root cause, which is a genetic abnormality which causes this. And it's, it's my belief that uh, it, it truly is uh, the moral and ethical thing to do to be able to modify the genes of that baby uh, to to fix that issue. Um, of course, with the technology, you're going to get people that want to preemptively design their babies and do all this. This is fallout. This is human nature. It's going to happen. Uh, but the, the positives are that uh, overwhelmingly, you know, human beings will be able to guide their own evolution and, uh, and resolve uh, these kind of lethal uh, genetic defects. So you, you're, it's always two sides of the same coin. But when we're talking about things like um, making a child deaf, I think it's pretty obvious that the line is, if you remove a capability that's going against the advancement of humanity, um, it's pretty simple in my mind that if you're going to enhance capabilities, um, like people ask, would I chop off my arm to get a prosthetic? Um, only if a prosthetic is better in every way, right? If I can feel the breeze on my arm, uh, you know, that's, that's, that has value and that's, uh, that's important. So, um, you know, the, the, the line, I think, is going to be, there's going to be a section of humanity that's going to pervert it and use it for their own purposes. I mean, there was a, uh, several cases of, of young boys uh, being born with a genetic modification, well, not a modification, but a, a, a mutation where they're exceptionally strong. At one year old, they're running around and doing one-arm push-ups. And immediately, those parents were getting calls from like NFL coaches. Uh, so there is going to be this bizarre sect of humanity that's going to try to create the perfect baby, right? And uh, it reminds me of that Dr. Seuss book where everybody has stars and then they all go to have them removed because, and there, there will be that. So, uh, and I don't think there's any way to uh, not have that happen. Uh, but I think it's the ethical thing to, to advance human society to the point where, um, you know, people can actually resolve these medical defects and, and, in, and even change our species for space travel and whatnot. Right. So it's interesting. Um, what you're saying when you're talking about resolving genetic defects, that's one thing, that's therapeutic, but what we're talking about through um, enhancement or, or through, the, through the, the transhumanist ethos, however, is going beyond um, what's called therapy and exactly that, moving into the, the realm of enhancement. Hence, amongst bioethicists, you do have this, um, uh, this, this constant debate about um, um, is it enhancement or is it therapy? And you do have some ethicists who argue that that's actually a very blurry thing, um, that it all depends on, you know, um, the frame and, and the context within which you look at that particular modification. Now, let me give you an example. Um, re, uh, as we know, CRISPR is revolutionizing uh, genetics as we know it, and uh, um, research in China is pretty much um, um, at the vanguard when it comes to doing work on human embryos. In fact, they're the only ones who've actually really done it. Um, the first one was interesting in, in, an, in, an, in as much as they actually were the first to actually uh, use CRISPR on a, on a on an embryo, human embryo, and what they did was they um, um, managed to resolve a very serious blood, genetic blood disorder. But for me, the second experiment was much more profound. What they did was, because as we know, CRISPR is not just knocking out a gene, CRISPR is also adding a gene. And what they added was 
a very rare mutation amongst humans, exceptionally rare mutation, that gives one a, a natural immunity toward the HIV virus. So imagine that. Um, you're actually born with an immunity uh, to HIV. Um, so what the Chinese scientists did as a proof of, uh, a proof of um, concept was they actually isolated that, um, um, uh, that particular genetic sequence and they plugged it into their little embryo and to see if it would stick. It wasn't the, it wasn't the most successful um, experiment, but they did manage to um, uh, largely succeed in that. And what struck me the most about that particular experiment was that this was the very first example in human history of a transhumanist um, or a transhuman actual uh, modification of an embryo. It was, the embryo was destroyed afterwards, by the way. In all cases, the embryos are just destroyed. Because what you actually have now is um, arguably a potential individual who would have a super immune system that they would not normally have been endowed with unless they happen to be that lucky 0.0001% of the human population. Now, let's just extrapolate this across the entire humanity and let's assume that for one moment that we decide that make this a conventional thing and that everybody has this. Everybody is naturally, genetically immune to HIV. Would we consider that, would we still call that an enhancement? Or would we just call it now a part of normal human functioning? Much in the same way, the anti-vaxxers aside, much in the same way that we consider vaccinations today to be part of normal human functioning. Each, of any, each and every one of you who have been vaccinated are super immune in a way that you normally wouldn't be. You would normally be susceptible to all sorts of atrocious diseases out there. But you've got super immune systems. You're all enhanced. So with that long, I guess, uh, uh, comment, I wouldn't mind if we delved into that debate a little bit about therapy versus enhancement. And we'll start off with Victoria. Yeah, um, I think that, the, um, Sherry, I think mentioned early on what is medically necessary as a norm. And I think that this entire body hacking area just challenges that norm. You know, what is medically necessary has got to have a, a whole new meaning or, <clears throat> or just be uh, narrowed into a different line of, uh, of cases. But I think that's where we start from. It's challenging that norm of medically necessary. So that just opens up a whole lot, uh, everything else. I think if it's medically, if it's not medically necessary, then I think there should be strict regulations about it. So cognitive and enhancement drugs are not medically necessary, but it definitely improves the quality of life for a lot of people and their studying habits and just like staying awake to do your job that you're supposed to do. So I know a lot of professionals use it, but I think that it has a lot of side effects that we're not sure of down the line and then also just kind of heart issues. And for students, that's my concern because a lot of students get it, not from a doctor, but from friends or from a dealer. So my concern with that is that they're hurting their bodies more than they're going to get enhancements from it. So down the road, they might have a heart attack because they're weakening their heart from taking a drug that kind of speeds up their body and their heart. So I think there should be more regulating about that on campuses. So for you, um, when it comes to exceeding human capacity, that's when the, your flags are raised. Yeah, I think it's okay to exceed human capacity as we think of it, but I think it needs to be done safely. That's my main concern. Right. Sounds like you want to say something? So, I mean, I, I agree what's been said so far. Um, in light of the prior, uh, the, the keynote lecture from uh, Dr. O, I, I think we all have to understand that uh, uh, there's a, uh, an infrastructure in medicine uh, addressing therapies, including ones, I mean, your example of uh, immunity and, and immunization is a great, a great example of what crosses over. Uh, uh, 
it's I think it's debatable whether it goes beyond species specific capabilities because well for that's another discussion but the infrastructure for developing uh, medical therapies uh, you know has intense regulations and not the least of which is to uh, prevent um, uh, uh, either ineffective or dangerous technologies from being perpetuated on the, the public. Uh, you know, the, again, going back to history, the, the, the story of, uh, of enhancements and therapies is, it goes, uh, one moment was in the, uh, oh, what, uh, 19th century, late 19th century, you probably heard about, seen on Westerns about patent medicine uh, people who would sell uh, various products promising uh, uh, various sorts of benefits, panaceas, uh, concoctions, elixir, elixirs, and so forth, some of which were simply ineffective, some of which were toxic. And the, the fact that people were exploited for business selfish interests uh, led the U.S. to pass, among other things, the Pure Food Drug and even Cosmetics Act, which is an interesting implication to the enhancement connection. That is, the cosmetics were deemed, because of their potential harm to skin, were deemed to warrant regulation as well. And so, so that began a transition of uh, developing tech, uh, uh, for, for developing technologies to be sure that they were safe and effective, culminating in the FDA and so forth that we have today. Regardless of what you think uh, of, about the efficacy of the FDA or, or governmental regulation, I think you also have to think of what Mr. Doctorow thought about and has discussed with us, which is, is, is that people who are selling these uh, bioenhancement or electromechanical enhancements have a prevailing motive to make money, and they may not have a particular interest in your welfare. And so we shouldn't be naive in, in uh, moving forward uh, with uh, either therapies or enhancements. Um, Amal, um, you've obviously, um, uh, like we've, as we've talked about, you've, you've gone through with some modifications. Um, uh, I would like to kind of turn now towards potential risks. Sure. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I can come up, I can conjure, you know, lots of different scenarios. I wouldn't mind hearing what kind of scares you a little bit about what you've done to yourself potentially, and maybe larger, you know, trends that might come from it. Um, wouldn't mind hearing some of your thoughts on that matter. Sure. Um, so, you know, these modifications are purely enhancement. There's, there's no disease that they're protecting against. Um, you know, vaccines are like preemptive therapy. Um, but uh, they're, they're pure enhancement. So my, my body is now capable of performing cryptography, for example. Um, and, and there is a fundamental psychological impact to, to having these devices. And, um, you know, we, we make them so that they're transparent as possible. Uh, they, they disappear. Um, like, we're all sitting here and our kidneys are working hard, but we don't think about it. And uh, they're doing a good job. So, you know, we try to make te technologies like that, that just become so ingrained in your daily life, uh, but with no management. So you don't have to manage your keys, your wallet, and your phone. You know, I've gotten rid of my keys. I've, I've gotten rid of one-third of that management burden. Um, but part of the thing that, that worries me isn't necessarily the, the medical implications. I mean, we have decades worth of data for the materials. I mean, pets have been getting implants similar to this for, for a long time. Uh, so I'm not worried about that kind of thing. 
Um, <clears throat> what I am worried about is things like Mr. Doctor was talking about. Um, you know, we're using chips from NXP, and they have some code that's closed. Um, are there backdoors? There's other people making similar things now in the biohacking space, but they're using like Chinese chips that have backdoors. And they advertise they have backdoors, but they might not advertise other backdoors that they'll have. So there's this kind of sense that now I have a part of me, something in my body that I consider to be part of me, very much so part of my identity, but there's a, there's a company involved that's not mine and software involved that's not mine. Um, now we're even moving into new, new territory where we have these um, flat, flexible transponders. They're made of biopolymers. Um, the material is, you know, ISO and uh, USP grade six and all of this, but in our process and all of this, we, we employ beta testers to, you know, because we don't know if the way that we've constructed the, the device is, is altering the performance of that material. Um, so we, we have a robust beta testing uh, you know, group, but this is all outside of, you know, IRBs and mm -hmm. any kind of review boards. Um, and I mean, the company's name is Dangerous Things. We we put it right out there, like, right. hey, this is this is uh, potentially dangerous. So, um, you know, creating new products, uh, testing them out. I was I have five prototypes now, so I have five five devices, two prototypes, and some other ones. And I I test them first. I I you know have them removed and looked at and all these things. But the scary thing is that I think that. Uh, as it grows as an industry, uh, and the drive to make money is there, uh, that subverts the community aspect of what's going on, and um, somebody will get hurt, you know. And uh, uh, apart from what scares me about uh, about the impact to the biohacking community, that, that's that's very uh, relevant. But I think the impact to transhumanism and, and society in general. I mean, biohacking is part of that transhumanist. Uh, endeavor, right? And uh, what we're doing, uh, bionics, you know, enhancing biology through direct implantation, um, that can be curtailed heavily uh, if there is such an accident or somebody has an adverse reaction or installation goes wrong and they get an infection and, and die. I mean, these are all possibilities. That's, that's the kind of stuff right. um, that scares me, not just from the things that we sell, but just in general, from the, from the community at large. Victoria, you, um, your resume shows you've done work with such very scary topics, bioterrorism and all that stuff. Um, you, you must go to some very dark places in terms of you know, some scenarios. But what could you say in terms of the risk as it pertains to body hacking um, specifically? Yeah, my, uh, my biggest concern is thinking about 150 years into the future. And I have a scenario that I've been working on that I'm trying to think through. So I'm going to throw it out here for the first time. I have uh, this concern that if we do start doing human genetic modification, that this is going to become important for industry, of course. And that's going to require gearing up for coming up with the, the best genetic modification that Company B has and selling your genetic modification, getting intellectual property on it, which we've already seen can be done on, on specific uh, uh, gene snips. So um, my biggest concern is that this is going to eventually leak into to human subject testing. And you're going to have not only killing the, the embryo after you see if it actually works, uh, mm -hmm. like your example um, with uh, inserting the uh, CRISPR gene, but what if you need to see how it actually expresses itself, which you ultimately will have to do with a gene. 
then are you are we going to eventually as a society accept human subject experimentation for gene therapy now you might say right now oh no way but let me give you this scenario what if what if this is extreme what if our climate became so so difficult for us to adapt to rapidly enough uh, because of um, um, obvious uh, climatic changes, however you want to characterize it, we have change going on. Let's just say a scenario, it got dramatically worse, we had a lot of volcanoes, something happened to make our atmosphere dramatically worse. Um, what if we had to rapidly change the human condition to be able to survive on Earth? And this isn't really that far out for some future thinkers. Then the pressure might be on to use human subject testing. Okay, if it means the survival of the species, okay, then maybe we, uh, we can accept human subject testing with genetics. And then you have to think about, okay, we're going to have a generation of uh, people who are these in another class. They're human, they were human genetic tests. I know this is sounding weird, but stay with me here. I'm talking 150 years and we've got pressures that we don't think possible at this point. What if we then create that, uh, a new, uh, a whole underclass of humans that were uh, human testing subjects? How, how do we even think about, about dealing with that? And um, so I'll throw that horrific thought out there uh, for you, but you can see how we could, we could go down that path and perhaps find ourselves thinking about that horrific um, uh, kind of uh, decision-making and let's say you know we haven't gone to another planet yet to set up a colony and we have to cope with it here so that's very futuristic but uh, it's something that we maybe should be thinking about uh, Sherry what keeps you up at night <laughs> what keeps me up at night uh, uh, I'm asking uh, uh, oh just no, sure oh no. I don't know <laughs> I like sleeping I don't know Sorry? I like my sleep, so I have a pretty easy time oh, okay. sleeping. I don't really <laughs> think about things like this too much at night. But um, I don't know, it just kind of bothers me to think about, like, one decision I would make to enhance my body could reach on somebody else's. I think that's kind of, like, I recently wrote an article about the contact lenses that are embedded with cameras. So I just think there's a lot of legal issues with adopting technologies like that, where, like, I could take a picture of somebody in an intimate setting and maybe put that online, or what happens to that when I die? Where is that stored? Who gets that when I die? So things like that kind of just bug me right. a little bit. And I just as a sneak <laughs> preview to some things that have been said today, uh, tomorrow we are doing um, a panel on um, regulations, uh, certifications, licensing of these sorts of technologies, and we will definitely get into some of these issues like privacy and um, surveillance and all that sort of stuff, which are also a part of the ethical conversation as well. John, did you want to add anything to the kind of the ri risks and kind of things that you're particularly concerned about? Um, well, so uh, from the, the idea of bio-enhancements of various sorts as well as, again, as I call them electromechanical enhancements, I have, I have two concerns. One is, uh, has already been, I think, uh, Professor Martin already mentioned this about the idea of, of, of bringing these forward in an environment of pretty significant social injustice where the haves and the have-nots, the gap between the haves and the have-nots continues to widen and the availability uh, of these almost certainly very expensive enhancements uh, 
to the haves are only going to continue to widen that gap. And there seems to be increasingly very little consciousness in terms of uh, addressing, addressing these widening gaps on a very broad social level, uh, not just in the, in the enhancement community. Then the second, the second thing that I worry about that uh, I think Victoria was uh, sort of allude, perhaps alluding to is I worry about uh, uh, rogue uh, practitioners. Um, uh, so, for example, uh, that will then create uh, problems or challenges to us that we're ill-prepared to deal with. Uh, a good example is, you know, years ago when the first sheep was cloned uh, and there was a, a decision uh, in many countries to ban human cloning, uh, I, I think it's only a matter of time bef before one or more rogue scientists start cloning humans, and then we have uh, a situation about how do we regard these people? Um, uh, you know, what status would they have in society? They they would be denied, uh, at least on the f on the face of it, uh, the uh, ordinary. Uh, expectations of citizenship and participation potentially um, and uh, and and indeed might be well developed to serve uh, how shall I put it more dark uh, uh, applications I mean we already have problems with human trafficking we already have the problems with illegal uh, organ uh, procurement and transportation um, you all have enough of a science fiction consciousness to know uh, where where this could all go. So th those are the two areas that mm -hmm. that I think about and am concerned about. Yeah, please. So much to say. Okay, so um, in 150 years, I think we'll definitely have the protein folding thing down, and we'll be able to totally model uh, all genetic modifications. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about it in the next 10 years. Right? Um, we already have human test subjects for our stuff. So it's happening now. Um, and so, yeah, I think the danger is more short, short game, long game. I think, I think we'll solve that issue. Um, and the, the other thing I want to address is uh, the, the idea, I think, of biohacking is to address the democratization of this technology and make it affordable and accessible. Um, there's a lot of groups within biohacking that try to open source their work. Um, you know, we're, we're doing work that, uh, to, to build devices and enhancements that are um, you know, affordable and, and something that, you know, Apple and Samsung and Google aren't going to bring out for the next 50 years, maybe, who knows. Um, so if you look at the data of, you know, how quickly uh, high technology is adopted, that's actually shrinking. Uh, the gap is income gap. It's not technology gap. You have people that are on food stamps, but also have a cell phone. So it's, I, I'm, I, I see that, uh, you know, the technology emerging uh, at, at affordable prices right out of the gate, right? whereas you know it took almost 100 years for everybody to get electricity, and and uh, once it was introduced, and now it's ubiquitous. I mean, then the refrigerator took a little shorter time, and the cell phones took only 10 years to gain ubiquity, and um, you know anybody can go in a library and get on the internet. So I think those those gaps are rapidly shrinking, um, and uh, you know when we're when we're talking about um, class warfare and things like that. I mean, we've seen uprisings because of these technologies and the availability and accessibility of them. So the haves and have-nots, um, I think, will come down to DRM and control instead of availability and accessibility. 
So I've got a, like a, I guess a conceptual question. Um, there is, I would say, kind of an, an emerging, um, I guess, counter, um, a counter group to, I guess, the transhumanism and body hacking. And um, for the lack of a better phrase, they are, I would refer to as the human exceptionalists, um, where you have thinkers who do draw the line um, very firmly in the sand, thou shalt not pass kind of admonition where we are not to modify ourselves um, in, in these, these sorts of ways, such to the point where we, we risk now no longer being classified as human, whatever that we might decide is. Um, um, and Amal, actually, I'm going to start with you. I mean, um, what, what would you say to the human exceptionalists um, who worry that we will cease to become human at some point? Um, ask them if they are a tooth filling. I mean, I mean, it comes down to that. You, you think about, um, you know, enhancement or modification or anything. Um, you know, has anybody ever, you know, taken a drug to... Yeah, but I'm going to interrupt you there because it, uh, qualitatively a tooth filling or shoes or a coat is quite different than what we were talking about when we are talking about changes to actually, let's say, our, psycho our psychological modalities. Sure. That we actually change the framework within which we look at um, others, we look at ourselves, um, our, our intellectual capacities have been augmented and our memorization skills are changed. So that's not a tooth filling, obviously, and we are no, no longer now, you know, at, at a qualitative level, what can be considered human, and they worry that we not only risk alienating ourselves from the ex uh, existing humanity, but that this might lead to a slippery slope where we are now degrading and demeaning ourselves um, in ways that uh, we would not, doesn't fit in accordance with modern values. Sure. I mean, but all of that is subjective and it's always in flux, right? So um, even just our simple enhancements, you know, when I have my cell phone, I'm a god. I'm cognitive god. I'm communications god. I can touch any information in human history. And that's, you know, that's not nothing. And so simply moving this tool from here to in here, there's not a real difference, right? Um, we, we're already in this flux of changing social norms and all of this. So I think that it's just um, fear that's driving this kind of uh, mm -hmm. rebellion against it. Victoria, what are your thoughts on the human exceptionalist? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think you'll hear from every religious group about why this is not where society should be going, where humans should not be going. I think that's absolutely true. And that's uh, going to have to be something that, you know, we work through as a society. I don't think there is an answer to that. And you might say, well, why can't we all just get along? Why don't you live over here in your human exceptionalist world and we live over here in our transhumanist world? But both of, but, but both of those worlds want us all to be the same world. So, and you are almost inevitably, you're going to be sitting in the same room with, with everyone. You're going to be going to the same uh, functions in society with everyone. So the, I think that's where the problem is, that, that the, to the extent that you can't live in your own group with those values, they're going to clash. And we're going to have to come to some, uh, be accepting, I think, of both mm -hmm. groups in some way. But I don't know if that's going to be enough. Yeah. I, don't know. I don't know the answer now. Uh, John or Sherry? Um, I agree with both of you. Uh, actually, I don't think this is any this this problem is anything particular, particularly unique to uh, the transhumanist movement um, at all. I really see this as uh, as uh, uh, the problem that humans have faced for millennia, which is how do we get along with each other? Um, how do we respect each other's values? Uh, how do we uh, uh, accept others who are different from us? Um, 
and and I really think that has a lot to do with the you know sort of the political uh, sphere rather than rather than any particular technological one. John, would you would you argue though that education and communication usually work to break down those barriers between tribes? I mean, I wish you were to write. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. Um, now that now that you raise an interesting direction here, but because. You know, I, I am an educator. I'm a professional educator. I'm a professor. Uh, I believe in education. Um, and there are new developments, new technological developments that I think make those sorts of efforts much more difficult. You know, we're ha you know when the current look on your Twitter feed and there's discussion about post-truth and, you know, <laughs> lies and what counts as lies and who gets to decide who's lying. This is a real problem. This is a new problem. Um, the other thing uh, that's dis that's that's uh, disturbing about the the potency of educa education alone to make differences is uh, is uh, that you know the new the internet culture allows people to uh, talk only to those people who mirror their own ideas and basically exclude others who don't uh, mirror their ideas. And that seems to me, uh, again, this is my speculation, that it has a lot to do with the sort of radicalism that we're seeing uh, of various stripes around, around the world that then erupts in these polarizing, you know, hate uh, uh, positions on a whole variety of issues. And so, in some ways, I uh, I see that this this is a is a major challenge, perhaps the major challenge for the future. I, I would imagine, though, if if we're talking speculatively far far, far future, where um, you know communication's more uh, uh, on a whim and uh, emotional connection with people and uh, cognitive connection with people, we're talking singularity, right? Um, where we have this kind of neural interface where we can communicate as a co cognitive group, um, mm -hmm. you know, being able to be educated, not just from news of political human endeavor, but like scientific fact and things that, um, that can be tested empirically. Um, you know, I, I, I do believe that uh, we'll reach a point through technology where we can have this, um, this understanding of each other. Even if we don't agree, there's an understanding of intent. And um, that understanding of intent alone will help diffuse this kind of... I hope your generation uh, is able to reform education so some of the fundamental skills that are so relevant today in terms of being skeptical and critical will be regained uh, in ways that I too much worry have been lost. George, I was thinking of an analogy to your question about the transhumanists versus the human exceptionalists, and one way that may it might be instructive to think about, and that is um, the two clashes today. If you think about this, the, two, the big clash, I think, in many ways, in the the, the uh, emergence of technology, is uh, the the people who use their cell phone a lot versus the people who are very critical. That these people are always looking at their cell phone. You know, I, I'm sure you're aware of it. You've heard that, right? Um, it's generational, but it also crosses generations. It's not just generational. So who, it's a, 
how do we how do we uh, fix that 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 clash? Uh, because the human exceptionalists think this is like the lost generation or the lost group of people who never go beyond uh, don't connect with humans anymore because they're on their cell phone. But will, where will the momentum be? Are we going to have more momentum coming from the human exceptionalist side, or is the momentum on the connecting with technology side? And I would suggest that the momentum is really with the technology side. And is it changing us? Yes, it is. And then the other group doesn't like what they see. But it, the momentum seems to be going this way. So if, how do we learn to cope with that? that change in who we are and how we relate to each other because it is changing and I think that's where the momentum is. Yet, you have that, that, those, that two, these two uh, very strongly opinionated divisions and how we're coping with that. I'm going to ask one final question and uh, then I'd like to uh, have the, uh, uh, the audience start to pitch their own questions. Um, and uh, let's imagine that we're going to be gathering uh, 10 years hence. It's going to be body hacks, 20... 27 and uh, all goes well, the five of us will be here again. Um, um, what will we be talking about, Amal? Oh boy, 10 years, hmm. Um, probably Mars Colony, I would hope. Um, that would be amazing. That's, that's a tight timeline, but that would be amazing. And probably the technologies that got us there, um, both um, you know, spacefaring but also human technologies. Um, genetics is gonna be off the charts. Um, there's probably already going to be uh, AI that's starting to creep into uh, into human endeavor. Um, yeah, it'll be very interesting. And I, I think when you couple AI with cognitive enhancement, then it's just like off the charts crazy. But uh, 10 years yeah. is maybe a little too soon for that. Right. Sherry? I think kind of backtracking to the cognitive enhancement drugs, I'm hoping we don't have drugs that can keep us awake for 30 days or more oh, without yeah. needing sleep because I think that's like things like sleep and yeah. rest and like things of that sort are kind of fundamental to us being human. So kind of backtracking also to being human and what makes us human, I think that would be kind of a sad existence if our whole life just becomes like, I'm gonna take this because I have to go to work and my whole life's just gonna be work, work, work and being productive all the time. I think that's a sad existence, so I really hope that doesn't happen. Can future. you die from sleep deprivation? Can you die? Psychosis yeah. starts first. Can it's you die from good. sleep yes. deprivation? Mm -hmm. All right, there's yeah. the answer. Korean yeah. gamers do it all the time. Yeah, but uh, DARPA is definitely trying to create the so-called super soldier, and they're trying to figure out uh, how to create a soldier that either needs minimal amount of sleep or no sleep at all. The, the first transhumans will be U.S. soldiers. It's, uh, my my institution, uh, there were studies uh, funded by DARPA for uh, uh, knockout mice that uh, don't need sleep, and they're interested in, in their mm -hmm. behavior. Has anybody done polyphasic sleep? It doesn't work. Oh, it's great. <laughs> For, if, if you have no Did you want to away. fill in the uh, audience what that is? Sure. So um, polyphasic sleep is um, essentially where you're awake approximately three and a half hours, then you take a 20-minute nap, and you're awake, and, um, and getting into it is tough. Getting out of it is even tougher um, for different reasons. But essentially the idea is you can cut down your sleep requirement and still function at a, at, a, at a decent level. And I think there was a study done where it showed about a 7% degradation of performance, but you gain um, the ability to essentially work much much right. longer. It's right. for people doing depends, like yeah. solo sailing around the world and stuff like that. Right. Um, I did it for a time. It was interesting. Yeah. Th those that uh, I know who have done it say it's it's hard to, to do it, that, to, to it stick is. to those schedules and, and make it work. Socially, yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. Uh, John, 10 years from now, what are we going to be talking about here? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't. Okay. 
And Victoria? I would say equity issues. I'm sorry? Equity issues. Equity issues, yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Are uh, only the, the wealthy and well-to-do able yeah, to big time. enhance themselves. Yeah. I mean, today we're uh, in the United States definitely grappling with uh, the concept of universal health care. Um, and imagine, you know, 10 years, 20 years hence when we have what could be arguably, you know, enhancement technologies on, on the market. And there's no way that, the, you know, the government's going to pay for those. And that's going to be a, a bone of contention because you'll have people make the counter case that, no, 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 that's not a therapy. That's, that's, sorry, that's not an enhancement. That's definitely a therapy. And you should definitely be paying for this as part of, you know, state coverage. So. But the government's already paying for things like that. They're paying for cell phones for people that can't afford it because it's mm -hmm. a critical ah, service. Right, assistive um, devices. Yeah, like yeah, and they're paying, you know, libraries are places where you can go and yes. access the internet. So I think once, once society gains a certain level, uh, you're going to get your, you know, your super cool commercial enhancement, but then you can have your government cheese version, right? Uh, because it's going to be required for society, yes. uh, and just like a utility. Or, Absolutely. Okay, thanks. Uh, and now definitely um, open it up uh, to some questions and... Yeah, so open devices, and when you're talking about in, in vivo devices. And so, um, you know, we're, we're making a, a device now called the VivoKey, which is a Java card platform. So you can load software apps onto it, crypto apps, things like that, and kind of the idea is that you own your identity. And part of the problem is that a certain section of that chip is off limits to us, the JCOP operating system. And so that's all controlled by NXP, and we, we can't touch it. Uh, all of our apps that we deploy are open source, uh, but that doesn't solve that problem that the operating system is closed. Um, it, it can, however, we, it, it's above and beyond the capability of even a Kickstarter because to do that and to do it effectively, when you're talking about an in vivo device, you're dealing with very small spaces and very purpose-driven development of the hardware. And so everything's system on chip. You know, if you're gonna break it out, it'd be far too large to put into a body. So to get a chip fab involved is millions and millions of dollars. Um, but there, there is a drive, there's already concerns and, and thoughts of driving in that direction of being able to get your own chip uh, created at a fab that's completely open, everything's open. Uh, that doesn't mean that the fab can't be uh, playing evil maid and put their own stuff. I mean, that happens a lot with a bunch of chips that go onto motherboards and whatnot. But um, there, there is a drive to do that. It's just we're at the baby steps now of getting what we can. Well, the, uh, there is a President's Bioethics Commission, and that was created, well, I think it was Dolly the Sheep that actually inspired that first creation. And then things like um, the creation of Cynthia, the first synthetic cell that uh, alarmed everyone that we created life, perhaps. There was a huge hearing with the President's Bioethics Commission. I think for us in the United States, that is our ethics board for um, what we allow and don't allow at this point. And it, it, because it's a bioethics commission, it's not law. It doesn't, it doesn't dictate what the law should become. It's just really, is this what we want? And are there any reasons we shouldn't do it? Uh, so the president appoints the members of that bioethics commission. Um, if we wanted something that was less partisan, perhaps, we could get um, a, con a combined commission, which happens that is partly appointed by Congress, partly appointed by the president. So um, that's what I would suggest might be another step, is to make a more nonpartisan commission that might be more universally interested in, in these issues. There, is, uh, there are science and tech boards in the military as well that don't deal very much with the, with the ethics issues, but maybe we should. 
maybe start there because like I said, I believe a lot of these come from the military. Uh, a lot of the money goes into research, DARPA, and we could probably tap in earlier by going uh, by that route, looking at ethics in the military as well and um, thinking about it in that way. But that's what I would do uh, to uh, increase the universality of thinking about the ethics of this. I think it's a great question, by the way. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, uh, I like the point you made as well. Like, once we do start to have a more modified uh, makeup about us, should those individuals be included in, in, uh, in those panels? And right now, you're right, it is up to the whim of the president, and we saw yeah. under W. Bush a That's rather right. backwards uh, bioethics council. And now we're all waiting with bated breath to see what uh, President Trump does in terms of that particular uh, makeup. Um, being, some, being a president who's clearly anti-science, um, uh, we'll, we'll see where it goes with that. It, yes, if we could make it anti-partisan, yeah. uh, or non-partisan rather, that would be uh, yeah. definitely a, a huge step forward. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, that's a good question. I'm thinking now about that, um, uh, that timeline um, that I'm always mentioning, how we are quickly more uh, rapidly adapting technologies. In the beginning, a TV took years for every household to get one. Now every household is getting a new device much, much faster, you got to see her curb. So we can expect that to continue to happen. So I'm thinking the future of Bioethics Commission is already going to be looking at adapted technologies by the time they even get to look at it. So will a Bioethics Commission be more a collective, uh, a collection of norms, um, you know, just assessing what's going on? May, we may be advancing so quickly with adaptation that a Bioethics Commission is just trying to keep up with it. So uh, I don't think they will set the norms, is my point, I guess. But they will discuss what are, what are the collective norms that we have now. I don't see them setting norms, though. John, you said you wanted to... So, yeah. so one of the things meetings like this uh, does is encourages universities with their scholars of varying stripes to become aware of and start to discuss and explore and rigorously either study or analyze uh, these sorts of issues. And so, uh, uh, I mean, my response to your question is how, how will bioethics keep up with, with uh, body hacking or biotechnology, whatever? It's, it's, uh, uh, I, it's basically a, a very old and familiar uh, mechanism, which is, goes for science as well as the humanities, which is the sort of division of intellectual labor. The, what one thing, a plea that I could make uh, uh, to this audience is if you think what we do is important, uh, uh, my field needs uh, bioethics, needs financial support, needs uh, centralized, you know, uh, federal grant support to this, do the kind of work that we do. We tend to fall at the bottom of the barrel in terms of uh, commitments for research of this type, which is unfortunate because in large part what we do is very inexpensive and, and many uh, uh, socially significant insights and analyses could be done for a relatively small uh, financial commitment. Uh, I think that's great. If I just might quick, quickly, if I gotta uh, interject myself here. Um, actually, you know what, I can park it. This is more of an anecdote, but go ahead. Uh, the federal funding, I have a problem with that because you have to go to an IRB, you have to follow all the federal requirements, and you might really run into some barriers with IRBs on this. That's my only problem with federal funding, but okay. you're right, that's where advances come from is a, a lot of federal funding, but they would have to change uh, the, 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 the whole norm of 
you know, medically required or that, that sort of idea to really experiment on these things. Yeah, so essentially, um, I had an opportunity to meet with the FDA recently, and all of our devices are non-medical. Uh, they don't fall under three tenets of medical device. So, um, you know, getting FDA approval is optional for us. Um, but what was interesting from the meeting is that um, FDA is a very big bureaucratic institution. Um, but the thing that I walked away from the meeting with was um, there are several in the in the organization that uh, they don't like to be surprised. Uh, and so with bioethics boards uh, and FDA, uh, they're, they're trying to vacuum up all the information of things happening independently out there. And that's, that's not a viable model as things increase in rapid, you know, rapidity. So um, being more open uh, and, and maybe even offering um, funding for or incentivizing uh, development of these technologies so, so they can be more engaging with these uh, organizations, I think would be interesting. But so, the, you know, in talking with the people at the FDA, they're like, yeah, we don't like to be surprised. We'd much rather know about it uh, and, and be prepared because then we'll be less reactionary to it. Um, but on the other hand, when I, when I say, okay, how do we get engaged? Oh, well, then it's just super complicated and, uh, you know, you got to pay a bunch of money to these independent review when really they're just gatekeepers of the knowledge. If, if the FDA was actually organized much better uh, for accessibility, in small, you know, independent people could actually access those resources, talk, engage with them, but it's it's so bureaucratically shelled that these there's financial incentive for experts to be the gatekeepers to that, and um, that was the the stopping point for us. The roadblock was like, well, there's there's no point. I don't have a million dollar budget to, to go talk to this expert who can help us through this process. But there's a na name for a mall's concept which you all should be familiar with if you're not. It's called citizen science. Mm -hmm. And it's a very important uh, uh, thing for you all to consider. Yeah. Further to um, John's previous point about uh, the funding for ethicists, uh, I also think there's a credibility problem. Uh, for some reason, um, uh, ethicists and bioethicists in particular, it's not part of the, of the popular conversation and it astounds me. I'm not quite sure why that should be the case. And just one quick story about, it kind of got me kind of thinking about that. Um, uh, further to the work of the Chinese scientists, as I was describing earlier, um, it really created a holy shit moment here in the United States, uh, similar to Dolly and Cynthia, and, and, and of course even um, things like uh, the first test tube baby, which we don't call test tube babies anymore, it's now IVF of course, the hysteria has died down. Um, but um, the, uh, a, a, a very, very concerned scientists uh, and concerned individuals and citizens uh, created um, a summit, if you will, in, in DC, and uh, what kind of, a, concerned me a little bit about it was the kind of demographic makeup of that summit. It was basically all scientists. There was one bioethicist was involved. And um, I love scientists, of course I do, but I sometimes find that they're not the best judges, let's say, of public policy, of, so, of, you know, of uh, general analyses of society and the general thrust of you know, where we're headed. And um, perhaps, um, I was expecting actually the worst out of this summit, and I thought they were going to come out of it with moratoriums and bans, and this is, that, again, we should not be um, working at all with, you know, human embryos uh, with uh, gene uh, editing tools. But to my astonishment, they actually did come out of it um, with a roadmap to move forward. Um, we'll see if this roadmap now is going to be allowed to continue, but again, here, here is kind of like, uh, I guess uh, a, a map to proceed um, based on ethical considerations, even let's say if these ethical considerations were predicated by the sensibilities of scientists. And what they said was that yes, we should be allowed to work on human embryos 
um, under kind of strict set of criteria. Again, you know, make sure that there's consent, make sure that the embers are destroyed uh, after two days or whatever, uh, whatever, whatever length that they have decided. And most, and, uh, most importantly, they said that absolutely under no conditions should this embryo be implanted for you know, a full nine-month gest gestation. That is absolutely taboo at this point. We may get there, as you were alluding to, at some point for whatever reason. Um, and to me, that was actually huge because that means scientists in the United States can, uh, they actually kind of got the green flag on this. That you guys can go ahead and you can actually you know, work on, on human embryos with your CRISPR and uh, what other you know, wonderful genetic tools that you might have. So the only reason why I bring up that, that particular story is I really wish that the, the, that the summit, the body there, would have had a bit, bit more inclusive with bioethicists. That's what they do. Like that's what, that's what they're trained to do. Um, that's where they're the most knowledgeable. And uh, there is this, uh, this tension in my own mind these days that, that you know, when it comes to scientists trying to kind of influence a, a uh, let's say, uh, avenues of research uh, without being informed, let's say, by other informed parties. So that's kind of my, uh, my take on the matter. So I'll think one more question. Is this the recent one that, like, just last week that was announced? You're talking yeah, about? Yeah, with the organs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, if I might answer that question, um, I actually think the answer to that is no. I think that um, chimeric research is as taboo, if you will, as it is working on embryos. Uh, the thought of intermingling, like kind of creating these transgenic uh, organisms where you're mixing and matching um, genetic traits. Even let's say if you've got a pig and you've now changed 0.001% of its genetic constitution such as that you've included a human characteristic, that's still considered a chimera and a transgenic organism. Um, where we would, let's say, uh, realistically realize, oh, that's nothing to be concerned about. That's just a really minor change. We're not talking half pig, half human. But when you see the headlines and you see you know, a chimeric pig, it's, half, it's got human bits and pig bits, there's a hysteria about it. Um, what concerns me about that particular line of research is ultimately what the goal is, which is they want to grow human organs in a pig, in a porcine model. And I'm thinking, isn't that kind of not where we want to be going? Like, shouldn't we be talk talking about regenerative medicine and other ways of, you know, regrowing our organs or even prosthetic organs? Just suddenly having this idea of farms filled with pigs that are growing hearts and livers and kidneys um, is kind of dystopian to me. And there is, uh, Lori Marino, a, 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 a neurobiologist, put out a, a paper out um, uh, in, in Stat Magazine last week saying that there's other, not only is there the, the ethical issue as it pertains to what we're doing to these animals, uh, potentially humanizing these animals. There's concern about ad actually kind of at a neurological level endowing them with maybe some uh, human level characteristics. I personally don't believe that's happening, um, but it is, a it is a risk that's worth pointing out. Like, my goodness, could you imagine if a, if a pig, you know, although well, pigs are remarkably smart on their own, we shouldn't assume that they're not, you know, uh, I've heard that they're actually as smart as dogs, for example, if not even smarter. So uh, the thought of actually adding, let's say, a human characteristic might not actually improve their intelligence all that much. But there is this kind of nightmare that you've created a pig with a human brain. So you basically, basically what you've done is you've created, it's ridiculous just to say that, that you've got a, you know, a human brain in a pig's body. Those are, I think, beyond the science, both in terms of what's possible, but also in terms of the actual science that's being done. So I do want to take the wind from um, any of you guys if you wanted to chime in on, on that yeah, particular issue. Yeah, I, I think the idea of considering a pig with human organs and farming human organs from pigs as somehow horrific is no more horrific than what pigs go through already. Yes. There's no difference. Yes. Well, you take the heart out and then you get bacon. I mean, right. if, you, if you have eggs and bacon in the morning... Would you agree, though, that we should be moving to, away towards factory farming and no, the consumption that, uh, of meat that comes from livestock animals? Yeah, I think the, I, the whole progression of, of animalist meat or, you know, um, lab meat, basically, is great, and that's where we need to go. Uh, I don't think that the research is binary. I think that's, you know, they're, they're probably looking at a stopgap measure uh, before I we agree, can get actually. to, you yes. know, actual you know, regenerative medicine that way. But, um, but yeah, I, I think the overall drive of 
you know, as human beings, we're takers, right, from others. And it's just common. And this is my, like, whole, yeah. you know, ethic, my own ethics yeah. kind of coming into play here. But, um, you know, we, we, we use the environment and we consider an ourselves above animals. And just bottom line, we're going to use them until there's no more use for them. It's just, yeah. it's, gonna, it's just when, never going to stop. One last thing that I'll add to that, sign your organ donor cards, people, because yeah. that's why we're even talking about this. There, is a ma there are massive organ, do organ shortages uh, here in the United States, and if you all just you know, were to sign that, and uh, heaven forbid that any of you would pass away um, uh, such that you would be able to uh, you know, pass on that organ, but that's ultimately that's, that's why we're talking about this ridiculousness of creating farms filled with pigs with human organs yeah. in them. So. I have a question for the audience. Yeah, please, yeah. Okay, given the trajectory of genetic research and cloning of Dolly and all that, and then the supposed moratorium, how many people think that rogue scientists have already created human clones? I believe that too. I think they're trying. I no, don't I think, think they've done it. I think it's already okay. done. Like literally like walking in amongst them? No, I, I don't. I, I think they've been brought to term uh, and then probably either uh, put on ice for organ harvesting or uh, some other horrible outcome, but I think it's happened, yeah. I don't think a moratorium stopped. We are doing it with animals. We are doing it with animals. animals yeah. all the time yeah. now. Yeah, the same and science. The there's same there's science even applies. a commercial service now where in China where you can clone your dog. Your yeah, they, there was a startup here in the States for a while, yeah. but it, it, for some reason it died out. I'm not sure why. Yeah, people creeped out. There, there is a UN treaty against human cloning. That's I right. just want to throw that out there. Yeah, no, that's true. It's, it is against the law. Absolutely, it is. Yeah. Underground. Yeah. Uh, in Canada, by the way, it's also against the law to do any kind of chimeric transgenic. Really? Law. Absolutely. Oh, uh, I'm, I'm Canadian, um, and uh, this the charter that we have that was set up is now kind of archaic. It was set up now, like, I think, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and it has not kept up with the, uh, the changes in... Uh, uh, in technology, and it's still quite, uh, it's very backwards, and it needs a massive overhaul, but not, uh, no one, absolutely no one is even talking about that in Canada right now, so. Call Trudeau, get him on it. Yeah, yeah, I might, I might just have to write about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, do, do we want to stick around still for a little bit and ask some questions? Um, otherwise, we're, I think we're running out of time. I don't want to be, um, yeah, like, go ahead. I don't see that any different than, that, than having nine kids to run the farm, and work right. on the farm. Yeah, well said. Yeah. Okay. I don't see that as any different than having nine kids to work on the farm. Or in Foxconn. Yeah, I, I happen to agree. I don't, I don't think it's ethically dubious territory. Um, I guess at the, at the most severest level, you could say this child was a means to an end. But ultimately, if the parents are there to you know, love and take care of that child and raise them, then I have absolutely no issue with that. Yeah. Um, oh, further to cloning as well, I also think that that's also, it's like you said, it's against international law. Very serious. But what's the big deal about it? And uh, we already, we're already seeing through popular culture, through uh, shows like Orphan Black, uh, uh, this positive portrayal of, of, of cloning, um, where we're, already, we're kind of relaxing about it. Whereas maybe 20 years ago, they would have been the monsters in our movies. Now they're kind of the heroes in our movies, in our shows. So. I just want to clarify that a treaty, it's government to government, so it doesn't make it a crime for you to do it, but it's between okay. nations, so nations are not supposed oh, to allow you. it. Okay, thank you yeah. for that. Yeah, sure I, I think cloning is one of the biggest non-issues right now in bioethics, and it's a... It's a, a, a well, the, the only reason that it becomes an issue is because the, 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 the idea being that only the rich are going to start this process, and they're going to essentially make clones Homogenize. themselves. Yeah, you hear these ridiculous... And, yeah, yeah, yeah. They create an army of, like, Hitlers or something. No, not an army, but the, your own personal okay, organ donor, right? Oh, oh I see. Gotcha, so gotcha, you, gotcha, you make gotcha, a clone gotcha. of yourself, but you pith it, and you keep it alive, and you're like, cool. I got a heart. Well, that's it. against the law. I yeah, mean, of uh, that, there's a lot of well, it does sound pretty horrible too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Besides <Yeah>. the law. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, but there, you also hear these kinds of, you know, really judgy sorts of things when it comes about it, like, why would, how would, you know, someone would be so arrogant and so narcissistic to produce a clone of themselves. And I'm like, well, that's not up to you to decide. Like, that, if that's what they want to do. Like, raise a, a, you know, a twin, basically raise their twin that's a generational, that's a generation, you know, removed. How could um, I be so much better if I raised me? Yes. Right? Yeah, I think it'd be a fascinating, uh, <laughs> imagine raising yourself. You know, I'd, I'll never do what my parents did to me. I'm going to treat my, my own ver- my, my little version of myself much better. I think better. it's probably more, uh, m- more <laughs> likely that a parent will try to clone a dead child, like, like they have an accident or something. Do you, do you have a problem with that? Yeah. Well, I mean, they're, they're essentially trying to replace their child, and it's not going to be the same cognitive development. Right. Would you say these parents are misguided then? Um, well, I would say that their expectations are, are not going to align with reality. There are lots of misguided patients, uh, parents, parents out there. Yeah, there are. That with their yes. dog. Right. No, true enough. True enough. And of course, uh, cloning also allows, uh, let's say, same-sex couples to um, uh, have a biological mm-hmm. offspring, if that's important to them, which for many, obviously, it really is. Um, or, for, you know, um, or, um, uh, I've lost my train of thought on that one, but uh, there, there are, I, I would say, valid reasons for allowing and sanctioning human cloning. That's just my own particular thought. Okay, I'm worrying that we're moving over time. It is exactly one o'clock. We've been here for 90 minutes and it's been amazing. Um, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Now, a special thanks to the team at Body Hacks and ISSW for sharing this recording with us. And remember, if you're able to make it out to Austin, Texas for either one of these conventions, please feel free to do so because Body Hacking Con and InfoSec Southwest both are worth the trip, worth the money for the experience for the networking. So our loyal listeners, if you would like to know more about this journey we take weekly, check out the DMP homepage, dangerousminds.io, or go to facebook.com forward slash podcast. Keep in mind, events like these are listed on the DMP Google Calendar. And if you have an event that you would like to have added, please email us about it at info at dangerousminds.io. Now, all of us want to thank you for joining us as we explore further the tech and the people behind it within this fastly growing community of biohacking, grinding, implantable technology, as well as information security today. So please feel free to reach out to us with questions or comments, and perhaps one day we'll talk to you about the work and or projects you're doing exploring and developing till next week seek the spark scientific progression is steamrolling there's no preventing it going ahead now we're intrinsically linked with technology biology as we know it is dead <laughs>